Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery. I'm your host, Chris West. Don't forget to subscribe and listen to us on all the major streaming platforms, Google Play, Apple, Stitcher. Follow us on all the social media sites at Recover Everything and visit our website at recovereverything.com. Go there, say hi, leave a story. On today's episode, we have the Honorable Judge Cedric Kearns. The judge was intense, really. Uh, He is very passionate about the work that he's doing, and he rules over the Youth Offender Court, which handles kids between the ages of 18 to 24 who need help with recovery and addiction as an alternative to jail, which jail sucks. Nobody wants to go to jail. My co-host today is Caitlin Martinez. Enjoy. I'm your host, Chris West. Uh, My co-host today is Caitlin Martinez. Hello, everyone. And our guest today is the Honorable Judge Cedric Kearns. Come and say hello. How are you today? Hey. (laughs) Good. Um, So you're very active in the recovery community, yes? I would think so. I would think that in the recovery community, when it comes to judges, uh, that my name would come up. It did actually a few times for good or bad. Yeah, (laughs) it would it would come up. Um, So before we get into all of that stuff, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Um, Well, I've been a judge now for 21 years. I came to Las Vegas in 1984. I was I went to UNLV and tell you, you gotta love the community. I don't have to go visit anybody. They come visit me. It's yeah. so true. Oh, so we're lucky. It's a perk. <laughs> yes. Um, and then I would say I, I started in the, the specialty court field, um, I want to say 2004, as I started with the habitual offender court. My original targeted 25 defendants were arrested. I'm trying to remember, I think it was 3,152 times in their lifetime. Jesus. Wow. So they were getting arrested 33 times a year. Wow. And so the idea was that, you know, because I'm a misdemeanor court, Mm -hmm. that we would quit processing them. So what we would do is we'd suspend a lot of jail time. Mm -hmm. And then when we messed up, we'd max them out. Okay. And they came to me because I was the, I guess, the harshest sentencer at the time. And so I got started and then I'm like, this doesn't make sense. So I wanted to figure out what was going on. And so I got involved with a couple of folks at West Care. And we started working on, let's talk about what the root problems were. Mm-hmm. And that's, and, and I got to tell you, at that point, point, I knew nothing about substance use. I knew nothing about recovery. Um, but I knew I didn't like locking people up for, for issues mm-hmm. that, that they didn't deserve to be locked up. Sure. So any CLE or any class they had on addiction or substance use or anything with regards to specialty court, I started going to. And within years... I'd say within a year or two, 
uh, we knocked the 33 arrests down to three arrests. Wow, that's huge. Some of the folks who were getting arrested back then in 2004, 2005, they still send me Christmas cards. Yeah, I was was reading that online, that you get a lot of uh, contact. Yeah, they still they still keep in touch, and sometimes they'll come in town and they'll call me and they'll say come visit, and I'm like I'm kind of busy with my family. Right, I'm glad you're doing well. <laughs> so, so I read that you were on a nationally ranked debate team. I was. Was that uh, at UNLV? It was at UNLV. Okay. Um, the first year I was there, the team actually won the national championship. Wow, is that was that part of your reason for coming to UNLV? No, okay. um, I my first semester in college I went to Iowa State. Okay, and the weather had like minus 30 below wind chill. So I tried to find the warmest place I could possibly go. And so I ended up in Las Vegas and, um, you know, I debated a little bit in high school and they had a really good debate team and I debated for them. And by the time we were seniors, uh, my partner and I, uh, we were one of the top teams. And I will say that we were nowhere as good as UNLV is this year. Okay. Wow. UNLV is incredible. As a matter of fact, they have a young kid named Jeff Horn. Uh, and you may know Jeff's father, who's very active in the recovery field. Oh, okay. Um, but he's the top debater in the nation right now. And wow. they're just dynamite. How do they... Uh, rank? Yeah, rank. Uh, you have rounds. Uh-huh. You, you go in and, and we have a topic and we debate and, and there's judges who decide who wins. And based on your record... You go through and you get points for wins and, mm-hmm. and then it's, it's fun points. to judge debate. My um, stepson was in debate in high school. And so I would judge sometimes. And it's really fun that you learn a lot because these kids get educated. About well, every, they're debating everything on. leads to nuclear war, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm mad about it. Um, so then you after after college, you started your own firm. Yes. Yes. Um, I after law school, I came out my debate partner, actually, and I became law partners. OK. And one of the guys who I was the associate with, he was dabbling in some alcohol and drugs and gambling and some Mm -hmm. issues. And I knew I did not want to work for him. So I thought, what the heck, let's open our own practice. And so we were (laughs) incredibly successful. Really? uh, Just out of the, and I don't know how, because we were both new, but we were able to do well. What, uh, what kind of law? I did criminal defense and he did the civil work and I did some domestic work. And then five years I was on the bench. What prompted you to move towards becoming a judge? What was that decision like? You know, I never really thought I'd ever be a judge and I didn't want to be a judge. Um, I wanted to be retired and extremely wealthy and (laughs) practicing that you see. But there was a judge at the time who I did not enjoy practicing in front of. Uh. So here I am, a 31-year-old kid. And I said, well, this is a good way. I'm just going to run against him. And apparently a lot of people didn't like him <laughs> because I had no business at 31 being on the bench. And that, I, and yeah. I Is that extremely young to that's be a judge? That's what I was going to ask. Yes, Is that I was young? the youngest mm-hmm. one on the bench at the time. Wow. Wow. That is crazy. 31. Yeah. I'm about be 31. <laughs> yeah. And and I was up there. And, and since then, you know, there have been a couple other people who who took the bench at younger ages. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was How pretty young. young. How young can you be to be a I want to, well, I want to say Joe Bonaventure took the bench at 29. Wow. That's, That's insane. Yeah. 29-year-old. Well, some guys graduate high school early, graduate college early and move mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember the first time you had to sentence somebody to jail? Actually, no. Isn't that interesting? I was just Uh, curious. No. um, I do remember the first time I took the bench. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I thought I, I'm like, yeah, this is easy, right? Mm -hmm. I practiced in front of this court all the time. Mm -hmm. I did all these appearances. I was trained by other judges and I sat down and they called a case and I looked at my clerk and I said, what do I do? (laughs) (laughs) She said, it's an arraignment. I said, okay. But it's like, I just drew a blank. Right. Uh, Pressure's uh, on. I can't even imagine. I mean, it's just so much power. Yeah. Uh, They they say that, but but really, here's what we try and remember as judges. I have thousands of cases, Mm -hmm. right? I think right now I have maybe six or 7,000 open cases. So for me, every person that comes in front of me is just another number. Mm -hmm. But that person is the most important case in his life. Right. Mm -hmm. Or her life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we forget this because we're just trying to to go. So we are constantly reminded to just please listen, be patient. And it's really funny coming from me because I've been on the bench 21 years and I'm not very patient, but we we try and say, we've got to be patient, understand that this is the most important thing in their life at the time. Right. Yeah, because that that was leading to my next question is, how do you separate, like, do you ever feel bad even though you have to... Sentence someone to jail or whatever. You know, you you do. Um, Sometimes you'll have a domestic violence case, right? Mm -hmm. And so the individual's... Male, female, doesn't matter, but they're they're um, violent towards their spouse. But they're also the only person working. Mm. And so you end up locking up the defendant. You've affected the whole family. Mm. And so the family members are begging you, please don't lock them up. Please don't lock them up. That's What that's are we going we, to do? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if, if you lock somebody up for two days, they could probably survive, right? They could probably mm. keep their job. Lock someone up for seven days, they could probably still keep their job and do things. But when you lock someone up for 30 days, mm-hmm. they probably lost their house, they lost their job, they've lost their family. So we really try and make sure that justice isn't just incarcerating somebody. Mm-hmm. It's trying to stop. My, my court is more of a rehabilitative court. We do do some of the punishment part. That's, that's part of the job. But if there's a chance where you can rehabilitate, that's what we try and do in, in municipal courts is try and keep them from ending up in district court. So you do the private practice, you run, you run to be a judge, uh, and then you started, you said, working with Westcare? That's kind of what... Yeah, Westcare, uh, we didn't have anyone in the treatment. I, I first worked with TLC, mm-hmm. and TLC, it's Transitional Living Communities, and they would house the individuals. Um, but they weren't really treatment, they were sober living housing. Mm-hmm. And somebody came to me and said, hey, Westcare has this new grant. Mm-hmm. And we've got a person we'll give you if you're interested in treatment. I was like, oh yeah, bring them on. And so I started working with them. And then eventually you just learn and learn and you, you try and figure out how to deal with, with what's going on. Do you think that there is a difference between drug offenses and other crime? Like people who are doing purposeful actions or, or making some type of mistake and then maybe people that are just sick? Well, okay. You got to think about the the criminal mind, right? How sure. many people are just true criminals, right? Some people, the reason it's happening is because of mental health. Mm-hmm. Some people, it's happening because of their addiction. Mm-hmm. And some people are just jerks, Yeah, right? What we have to do when we're talking about our specialty courts, we have to decide whether or not it's someone with an addiction who commits crimes or if it's a criminal who uses drugs when we have that combination. Mm. And that evaluation is very important. What kind of factors are you looking at at that point? You know, that's something that the evaluators do. Okay, so that's Uh, an outside evaluation that happens. Well, I have a team that does that evaluation. 
and and you can kind of tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to uh, based on the here. nature of the crime too, and even if it is a crime that happens because of the addiction, if the crime is so dangerous, mm-hmm. sometimes we can't work with treatment. Mm. Um, you know, there's a difference between a petty larceny and an armed robbery. Mm-hmm. Right. And and what we were talking about earlier is, you know, substance use disorder is the only disease where the behavior is the side effect. Mm-hmm. And if we can deal with it and the behavior is not harmful to the community or not too harmful to the community, we can work with it. But if the behavior gets to a point where it's so dangerous then we have to do something to protect the community. And those are very difficult mm-hmm. to weigh. I mean, it, it's kind of like if, if you're epileptic, right? Sure. If you're epileptic and you get in a car accident the first time and we've discovered you're epileptic, we can do something to prevent that. But if you keep driving, mm-hmm. no matter what the standards are, and you keep having ep- seizures and hitting people, at some point you got to say enough's enough and you got to protect the rest of the community. You can't take the license and whatnot. Well, you take the license, they continue to drive. What are you going to uh, do then? Yeah, jail. <laughs> that's the only way you can do it. Yeah. And that's what we do with a lot of times is we, we set them up, we give them the tools, and if they don't accept the tools but their actions are so dangerous, we got to fix it. So I want to go back a little bit. You started working in the court that had the repeat offenders. Right. I forget the name of the court. court. When you were working in the Hope Court, what percentage of those folks would you say were dealing with a substance use disorder? If you say substance abuse and mental health, I Mm -hmm. would say one or the other or both. I would say it's higher than 90. Okay. 90%. Yeah, I would say it's higher. Nobody wants to be arrested 33 (laughs) times a year. Yeah. Right? And so one of two things, it's either mental health or it's substance. Hmm. And so we've actually still have the habitual offender court. Judge okay. Burt Brown does that one. And we have a mental health court now. Kara Campbell does that one. Is that ABC? Or no, that, that, would, that would be the one in Henderson. Okay. And Doug Hedger does that one. But Hope's still around, yeah? Oh yeah, Hope's still around. That, they started that in what, 2000? I want to say yeah. 2004. Yeah. So was, were you the judge that started that whole I am. court? Yeah, oh, I'm okay. the judge. <laughs> yeah, and, and nobody said it was possible. Okay. They said because it's a misdemeanor court, you don't have enough leverage. Mm. What does that mean, leverage? Well, if you're only going to lock someone up for 30 days, but you want them to get help or get treatment. It's not worth it for And you don't have leverage, right? Okay. I said, well, watch me. I'm going to run everything consecutive. Mm. Uh, so they were actually facing more jail time on misdemeanors than they would be prison time on such felonies. So I had plenty of leverage. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that makes sense because there was how, such high I, rates, yeah. the frequency of arrests. Okay. So I just run a consecutive and then they had a little bit of leverage and we would get them to where they got it. Yeah. They would get some, you know, they were going to, they were going to do when you were getting arrested 33 times a year, right? Mm-hmm. You were going to do 300 t- days in jail anyway. Mm-hmm. So, the whole idea is we were going to quit processing. And it's interesting because if you're giving them stints of 10 days, right, they never, if they had a drug issue, they never had a chance to get through acute detox. Right. Yeah. But if you gave them a stint of six months, mm-hmm. you know, they're not past pause, but they're past acute. Mm-hmm. And so then when you got them again, they're like, I want help. I'm tired of this nonsense because it wasn't so well. So it actually set up for the next charge in many cases. I you were saying, you give them a little bit of, a little time. A little clean time. A little clean time and then they don't want to have to go through that again. Right. Uh, whether or not they were because, using it. You know, it, it, well, they're still jonesing. Get out. Yeah, whatever they it takes. They haven't had the chance to clear it up, mm-hmm. right? But that's, but really, 
the cases they were picking up, we'd give them credit time served. And sometimes that took five to 10 days to see us. Mm-hmm. Then they pick up the n- next day. We weren't really giving them the services they need. Hmm. So. so when you were developing that program, how was it finding services and treatment for these people? It was, it was really interesting because um, back in 2000, I want to say one, there was a case in Florida called Pottinger versus Miami, okay. where what they were doing is just locking people up and not giving them services. And so when they did that, all of a sudden Pottinger sues Miami and they get this huge judgment saying, you just can't lock people up without services. So it was actually Metro who came to me and asked me to start Hope Court. Wow. And so when I needed services, I would just tell Metro, hey, I need help here. And they would help me. They would hook up services. Okay. And so if I needed inpatient, Metro (laughs) would help me. If I needed counseling, they would say, well, let's see what we can do. So when Hope Court started, it was really Metro who pushed it. I just happened to be the lucky enough judge to, to go ahead and do it. Are these types of programs prevalent like all around the country? Or? They are now. They are now. Um, they were new when I started, but like here in Nevada, every county has a drug court. Okay. At that time, was there a model for you to follow? No, no, we just made it up. All right. <laughs> but it worked. Yes. Who, cool. How did you guys design the... Uh, well, I don't know. It's one of those <laughs> things that evolved. Yeah, I feel uh, like they It was just, all we were supposed to do was suspend jail time. When they picked up a new charge, revoke them, give them their jail time. Mm-hmm. But as a team, we kept saying, this doesn't make sense. And so we kept working on different ways. And it was so interesting because I started, one of the, the things that was most successful for me is I started telling the defendants, you know, you've made such a mess of this community that before you do anything, we're going to make you do some community service. Mm-hmm. And we would clean up fields and we would clean up houses and we do that. I believed it was a punishment. Mm-hmm. I had no clue that it wasn't. What it was, was is it was actually giving people self-worth. Okay. I can and, see that. And so when they would start the program, and, and remember, you've been arrested so many times a year that you lied to everybody you know. You mm-hmm. don't think you're, you hate yourself, actually. You hate where you're at. You hate, so I would get them in there and I'd tell them, you know, you're worth saving. And they would say, yeah, you're a liar. You don't know me. You're a liar. So... Once I started getting them to do community service, they would be able to sit back and see what they've accomplished. Wow. So you saw their internal narrative kind of change. And then so when I'd say, you know, you're worth saving, they'd say, well, you're wrong. But but I wasn't lying. But they would see that they had some value. And it was even something as simple as painting a fire hydrant. Mm -hmm. They got to go back and claim that fire hydrant. Yeah, that's something to show for it. And it was interesting that what I thought when we developed was a punishment turned out to be nothing more than the first step to therapy. Hmm. And they were more successful when we'd have them do a community service project before we started counseling than if we just sent them off to counseling. What an interesting finding. Yeah, It, was, it makes it complete like, sense when you <laughs> lay it out like that, but that, it, but that's, that's kind of how it evolved, right? That's how right? it worked. And there was nothing, like I would have abatement cases in court where they would come and they would have, you know, because the house is, is trash, so they'd want an abatement. And I'd say, we're not going to, have some company come in and abate this and then charge the homeowner because they can't afford it. Otherwise they clean it up. So you're going to get a couple dumpsters and I'm going to get the hope guys to abate this. Mm -hmm. And we would come abate the property and to have a homeowner come out and thank them. And a lot of these guys had physical ailments or things like that where they couldn't do it. Did so much for self-esteem for these guys that it was like, (laughs) I got lucky 
mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was just trying to find a different punishment that I got lucky. And that got me going on, you know what? Maybe we have some, we have the ability to succeed here. Wow. Uh, weird question. How many uh, different kind of punishments can you, what's like the weirdest punishment you've, you've Okay, you this is great. I mean, I think this is, <laughs> noise annoyance okay. is when you sit in your car and you play the music too loud. Sure. Okay. Right? We've all been so there. You're, you're sitting next to you. Someone comes up and they're, well, this just bugged the heck out of me. So what I would do is if you had a noise annoyance charge, you had one of three options. It was 30 days in jail. Ooh. It was a $1,000 fine. Or you got to spend music appreciation class with me. <laughs> <laughs> and so what the music appreciation consisted of was you would sit in the holding cell and I would play my music. <laughs> Which oh my is? God. Well, we would start off with a little um, bluegrass. Okay. I do a little Italian opera. I do a little bit of Hank Williams Jr. I would do a little bit of polka. So what, what I would is I'd have everyone around the courtroom bring me their music. Uh-huh. And I would play that. And you That's can opt out at any time, but it costs you 150 bucks an hour. And how, you how long out. is this? Um, it was eight hours. Oh, wow. And so the seventh hour, they could choose the music, but they would write a paper of what they learned. Okay. Okay. And so while I'm doing this, I get a call from a radio station one day, uh, Mark and Mercedes, I think in the morning and saying, mm-hmm. hey, are you the crazy judge that's playing all this music? Uh, and so they had a whole suggestion. I guess they had the radio show. So they sure. had a oh, whole so suggestion of the music that, <laughs> that, that so we should funny. play. Yeah. Um, but that was probably the, the most interesting one. And they don't pursue those charges anymore. Oh, but we got some really, one guy said that he'd rather eat spiders and I think put pencils in his eyes than listen to <laughs> polka music ever again. <laughs> Polka's awesome. Because <laughs> if I, he said, I know if somebody pulled up next to me and was bumping polka, I'd be really upset. <laughs> right, right. That's so funny. That's an awesome. That's awesome. awesome. You asked awesome me what the craziest thing. sentence yeah. is, and that was probably the craziest. So are there limits, restrictions on how you can design these kind of um, Punishment? creative you know, punishments? And here's the interesting thing is because I always gave them the choice. You know, you, you think cruel and unusual, right? But I always let them choose. I said, look, it's $1,000 fine. Mm-hmm. Or it's this or it's this. You choose. Yeah, eight hours with me listening to Yeah. And like, I'll listen to your music. Yeah. And so. Um, How many people chose the. Well, we did that. We did that once a month. I'd have about 10 people in there. We did it for about a year. Okay. Wow. And so, you know, we'd have them in there and they all chose it because I'm not doing 30 days in jail and I'm not paying a thousand dollars. And they all got it. That what's music to you may not be music to me. And yeah. is, was that in the 90s? When this was happening? Uh, this was probably, I was in the new courthouse already, so it was probably 10 years ago. Okay. Just curious about yeah. if this was the time when everyone was putting the best, coolest speakers in their cars and subwoofers No, but they're still loud. Yeah. It was still yeah. loud, and, and I'm like, yeah, we're going to fix this. Okay. So how did Hope morph into... Why uh, yo, yo? Well, um, it never morphed into it. Um, or evolved. So Hope Court ended up going to another judge because... Um, you know, it got really basic for me, believe it or not. Sure. And so, but I, I was struggling with all these kids coming in. Oh, and, and they get lumped so into the your kids, but it was their parents who uh-huh. were justifying their nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, look, I have all these kids coming in, and I have this problem, and I hate to say it this way, but Hope Court got a little bit boring for me. Mm-hmm. So I said, let's take on these kids. Let's do that. And it was so difficult. I was having so many problems with these kids until I'm golfing with a counselor one time. And he said to me, he said, you know, you're never going to get anywhere 
unless you get their families. Yep. And I thought, hmm, I don't have jurisdiction over their families as adults. So what I've done is I have the family sign a contract that for their kids to qualify, the families go to counseling too. Mm -hmm. And so I've used the children for leverage. Whether or not that's constitutional law, I don't know. Um, <laughs> as a matter of fact, the Supreme Court told me one time when they were giving me an award that they weren't sure if it was constitutional. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> but it's successful. And so we all have special qualifications for our drug courts, right? You have to meet the qualifications. Mm -hmm. Well, to meet the qualification for Yale Court, you have to have family participating. Um, we only have so many resources. Sure. And the studies show that when family participates, you're so much more successful. So if we only have so many resources, we go for, believe it or not, we call it the low-hanging fruit where we can succeed. And that's where we have families participate. So no family, no participation. Pretty much. We do have two kids who my case managers have kind of adopted. Okay. But it's really not so much the families. We need to identify who the enabler is mm -hmm. and take out whoever is the person that's keeping them active. Right. What's the support system there that's, and that's perpetuating And that's the, what we work on. But yeah. But almost everybody, it's family, so, even if it's a significant other. So were these young adults, 18 to 25, finding themselves within the Hope Court? Were they? No, and okay. that's the weird thing, because you had to have 20, I want to say you had to have 25 arrests to be in Hope Court. In a year? Well, you had to have 25 total, but oh, okay. there was an average of 33, so okay. some of them really got it. Um, but they were just finding their way into system, and I've seen them over okay. and over. As a matter of fact, one of my graduates next week um, he started with me in 2015, had a petty larceny, picked up another one, had another charge. And it wasn't until he got his DUI, till his parents even knew he had two other cases, hmm. until his parents even knew that he had a substance use issue. Wow. And then, so I've had him. And so what, it's been four years since he's been in front of me on a two-year program, but, okay, you know, he's finally graduating. Was it a little easier from doing HOPE? Um when why uh, Yo Court came around to get all the organizations involved? Well, that's, little... that's real interesting because I didn't have any funding. Okay. Right? Uh -huh. <clears throat> so I went to the case manager who uh, worked for me in Hope Court. I said, this is what I want to start. Um, and I'm hoping you'll help me out. I only need, you know, one day. They say, sure. I said, okay, I don't have any money. <laughs> they said, that's okay. <laughs> I said, so you'll be there. I can't, you can't bill me. I can't have done. I said, okay. Then I went to one of my field workers. I said, I have this idea. This is what I want to do. Take care of it. I don't have any money. I said, done. In. But I didn't have a defense attorney. Okay. But there's this defense attorney and I, um, he was on the cover of the newspaper buying meth. Oh, I've heard of this guy. Uh, Steve Altick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he comes to me and, and he's like, Hey, I lost my family. I lost, I, I've lost everything. What can you do? So I made a couple calls in the community and Las Vegas Recovery Center said, we'll take him in for you. LVRC. So afterwards, yeah, LVRC. So afterwards, Steve comes to me and he says, Judge, I owe you. How can I ever repay you? I said, you know, that's really interesting you would have. <laughs> I said, I'm starting this new drug court and I need an attorney. He said, done. I said, well, I'm not done. I said, I don't have any money to pay you. He said, okay, done. I said, wait a minute. I need the attorney for life. He said, cool. done. Wow. And so he's worked for me since 2010 and hasn't billed me for Yocord. And he doesn't only handle the cases in front of me. When these participants pick up other cases, including uh -huh. domestic cases, family cases, sure. family mm -hmm. law, he handles all of them for free. Wow. And so um, that's how I started. Yeah. 
And then eventually I was able to get some grants and get community. And I'm, I'm speaking somewhere and I don't know. I, I want to say it was uh, elementary school and, and the president of Nevada State Bank is there. And I'm talking to someone about this new court. I'm, you know, how crazy it is. I'm starting this new court. And he looks to me and he says, why haven't you asked me for any money? And I went, uh, that was I, my no, next question. Do, you give, yeah. do you give money? He goes, absolutely. Make an appointment. Here's my card. And so Nevada State Bank has been one of my supporters from the very beginning. That's amazing. And they always fund the family part of it. Okay. Because the most interesting thing is grants, because mm-hmm. these guys are adults, right? Grants will cover the individual and they'll co- cover the participant, but they don't cover the family. Mm-hmm. But Nevada State Bank has been there from the very beginning and helped me out with that. So, Wow. <clears throat> So how, how has the program evolved in the last eight years? Uh, it's crazy. Um, it was a one-year program. Okay. It's now a two-year program. You, you know, I'm sure you both know pause can last up to 18 months. And mm-hmm. so we want to make sure we get past that. It was mostly when we started a talk therapy kind of program. But because of this age group, we've learned that Recreational therapy is actually more successful than talk therapy with this age group. I could see that, yeah. So what we try and do is, and I'm going to give you a perfect example. If you're in front of me and I say, here's the deal. You will go to your meetings. I'm a you scared will stay right clean. <laughs> you will do this. Or I'm going to lock you up for two days. Mm-hmm. If you're used to jail, that's no threat. But if I say to you, here's the deal. You will go to your meetings. Your room will stay clean. You will go to counseling. And if you do everything I ask... Thursday, we're playing paintball, and I'm on the other side. Huh. You will make sure you do everything so you get a shot at me. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. And, and so what we do is we really, really operate on fun, and uh-huh. we operate on incentives, because these kids are not afraid of punishment. No. Mm. But they love to have fun. So what we do is we do, like we did the zip lines at the stratosphere one time they, we got unlimited rides up there so you are personally involved in all this stuff as well. oh absolutely absolutely yes. and so we participate and, and it's good it's so not only am i but my marshals and my mm-hmm. team because we want these people to understand that law enforcement can have a positive impact in your life and do you, do you ever get frightened by some of the defendants you know it's interesting uh there's only really been one who's frightened me uh, he really scared the heck out of me. And he is now the head of the juvenile counseling drug court. Wow. wow. But he's the only one who's ever scared me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my marshals get frightened for me because I'll go spend time with the, but, but the loyalty when these kids are clean, uh, no one will mess with me because they'll, they'll, they'll take care of me. Yeah. There's um, a, there's a bond and, and, and a reputation. They, and they understand even when they go to jail, we talk about why they're going to jail and they know they've earned it. And I always tell them that I will never treat you equal, but I will always treat you fair. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference because some people should be held to a higher standard because they're capable. Okay. Uh-huh. And some people are not. And so sometimes they're like, why does he only have to write an essay and I have to do two days in jail? And we have that little discussion. I say, well, because I hold you to a higher standard. Am I making a mistake? Right. Because if you want me to treat you like a newbie, I will gladly treat you like you haven't learned a dang thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or do you want me to hold you to the standard that I think you should be held at? And rarely do they say, yeah, treat me like a newbie. <laughs> so. <laughs> so so there's a young adult there in your program. Something happens and they end up during the course of their two year program going to jail. They come out. Mm-hmm. They're still in your program. They're back. back we, in treatment. We will only work as hard as they are. OK. And if they're working, we'll work with them. 
And where they get closed out really isn't because of them. It's because when their family members keep, you know, the family members will undermine them. Yeah. And that's when we're done. Uh, because the program, I tell the parents, it's not about the kids. They're going to do, my job is only to keep them alive. That's it. Right. We'll try and give them the tools. And if they take it, they take it. But my job is to get the parents their life back. And if the parents are working, it's weird how the kids tend to get it together. Hmm. And it's just a successful byproduct. But when the parents don't participate and they're not doing it, we don't have a chance anyway. Yeah. Did you recognize right away that the family was a really important component for these uh, No, kids? I had a counselor explain okay. that to me. Okay. And then it didn't take me long to realize that when the parents got healthy, the kids yeah. tend to get healthy. And sometimes even the kids have... They cut themselves off from their parents because the family, yeah, as long as they start off together and we're working together. Mm-hmm. And if the parents drop out later and the kids are still working, we'll keep them. Okay. And there are some kids who've graduated and they still don't contact their parents. I mean, I have one kid now that the parents were in when we started and now the dad and mom are both in prison. Mm-hmm. The kid's in yeah. and he gets it and he understands it and he's going to graduate not He'll graduate in July, but he's turned out, he's one of my house managers. Just amazing. So is there housing um, as a component for some of the kids in your program? Well, they all start off in my house. Oh, okay. So, so even if they do have housing with their parents? We we do not let them actually okay. contact their parents for the first 30 days. Wow. Cool. Uh, we don't want to have any contact with their parents. We want the parents to understand that life can go on without them because unfortunately, sometimes they die. Uh, but we also want the kids to understand that they can they can move on without their parents. And some of them are really happy with it. Yeah. Some of the parents are really, some of the kids are really happy with it. And some of the parents, you know, I've had parents who had to put padlocks in their own bedroom door yeah. because the kids were stealing everything they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of them hate me. This is the way it works, right? The first month, um, the parents love me because I'm saving their kid. Then their kid looks healthy because these kids rehab. So the second month, the parents hate me because I'm still controlling their kid. Um, And then there comes a point when they realize, oh, things are better. So it takes about five, six months before they're on board. But by the time they graduate, they understand we've done exactly what we're supposed to do. And it's that first six months is where I lose most of my kids because the family. Hmm. And what happens when you lose Like They go to jail. They just go to jail. Just, yeah, they have suspended jail time. They committed crimes and they go to jail. Hmm. Uh, so that's part of the, the leverage that's that you spoke the leverage. About, That you do the program or you go to jail. That's yes, your options. and it's crazy because the kids will go to jail and they get it and they understand it and they're cool with it. And the parents are like freaking out. They're dying. Parents, it's like, uh, I'll go to jail for them. I'm like, no, you won't. But <laughs> um, So we operate off of a hot stove theory. Hmm. So... In normal drug courts, if you test dirty on Friday, but your drug court isn't for 10 days, then you you don't even know why the sanction's there anymore because you don't get remanded. Mm -hmm. Well, we operate off of uh, what we call the hot stove theory or instinctive behavior that if a three-year-old were to touch a hot stove, get burnt immediately, they may touch the stove one more time and then they're going to understand the stove equals pain. Mm -hmm. If the three-year-old touches the hot stove, then walks around for about two hours and gets burnt, they will continue to touch that stove and not be able to put them together. Right. So what we do, as soon as we know there's a violation, I will have them in front of me or I will have them in custody. And I don't care what day, what time it happens. So they learn Mm. this equals that. So what are some of the incentives of completing the program? 
You know, you get your life back. That's a big one. Clean, uh, and sober, no jail also, time. Uh, yeah, we also dismiss most of the cases. Okay. Um, and then while they're in the program, they can't graduate until they have a high school diploma or GED. Oh, they okay. have to be employed. They have to be self-sufficient. So sometimes disability works, but they have to be mm-hmm. self-sufficient. Um, we want them in independent living, but I also have them start a bank account. And so they will have $1,000 in the bank, but they also pay fees when they're programmed. So they'll ha- they'll pay $1,000 in fees before they graduate. Over and the it, two years. Right. And if you graduate, I give you half of that back. Hmm. Wow. So you get out of the court, and I know it's crazy because we're now giving them $1,500 cash. Mm-hmm. But we hope that they're in a better position and they understand and they can handle this. And most of them, $1,000 is not much. I mean, they have, my graduates, they drive nicer cars than I do (laughs) because they're doing so well. Can you tell us about um, like one of one, it sounds like there's quite a few, one of the success stories of someone who's really worked the program and got it? Without saying any names? Well, sure. Uh, Like I said, my my first graduate, um, he is the substance abuse counselor for the juvenile drug court. The one that scared you. Oh yeah. He scares you. He still scares me a little bit. I need to know why. (laughs) Well, let's say when he was arrested, it was on his doorstep with 19 officers. Oh, big deal. And the helicopter and all these things. And they were actually driving him to County and somebody said, Hey, we hear this new program. And so they sent him to me. Hmm. Um, my first female actually owns the uh, firehouse subs franchise of the first job she ever had. The sandwich uh, place. Yes. Another female is the manager at one of the restaurants where she hires some of my graduates. Um, there's so many. I mean, there's just so many of the ones who graduated that uh, they always, and they check in. So they so check cool. in and they all, they all, it seems like everyone who's graduated like, you know, three, four years ago, they all have kids now. Mm. And so all my graduates are, are there, you know, it's, a, it's, the age when you have kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they all have kids and they all have families and, <coughs> and, you know, some aren't, you know, I have one that's uh, going to prison and, you know, and I have some that are out there using, but it's so amazing that when they they go out, if the family members get sucked back into the addiction, we don't have a chance, but if the family members don't, the kids tend to get it back together. Cause I have some people who've gone out after they graduated but they're clean again saying, well, I realized I didn't have any family that was going to help do this. So you mentioned for the kid at this age group, you find that the recreational therapy is really important for them with where they're at. But the family really needs the help. What type of um, treatment do the family receive? Uh, well, we make them go to a four day class at LVRC. Plus, we also do a three day family camp. OK. Plus, I also make them go to meetings that make them go to Naranon. Uh, Al-Anon and, and they have to get sponsors. Okay. And then when I have court, the days I have court, we also do groups with the family members. Okay. And not all of it is, not all of it, some of it is, it, it's just life skills, parenting groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which it's amazing how little, you know, cause everybody's quick to judge other people. Sure. But when you sit in a group and everyone's going, what do you, what do you mean? What do you did? What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, then it's sometimes it's just, Eye awakening. Yes. Uh, but getting the sponsor for them tends to be really good. Uh, so they have someone they can talk to and, and figure out what to do with that. I'm curious on why 18 to 24 and not, let's say, 18 to 26. Well, because the brain is supposed to connect at 24. Okay. Right? And it's a two-year program. Mm. So if you get them at 26, 
and then they're not quite as much fun. Um, <laughs> period. Period, right? <laughs> and then it's, we do, we have taken them at 25 if we found that they've really been emotionally stunted. Right. Or, uh, we've taken them, even some at 26 if they've really been stunted. But 18 to 24, um, because with, with the men, uh, the limbic system's fully developed, but the frontal cortex is too, but they're not connected, right? And so we need to, to deal with them and with the women, it's different. They've connected, but it's not fully developed. So to get, and this is a good lesson, to get any boy under 24 to do something stupid, it three sentences. Wouldn't it be fun? I dare you. I bet you can't. They will do it. And I don't care what it is. They will do it because that's how we operate is off mm-hmm. the limbic system. Sure. With the women, it's a little bit different. It's, I thought you loved me. I thought we were friends. I thought mm-hmm. we belonged. A little more guilt involved. Well, it's relational. It's the, yeah. yeah. And so what happens is when my guys do something too stupid, because I, guys and girls are different in court, mm-hmm. right? So I do the, I do gender specific court. I say to a guy, so why did you do that? And he says, I don't know. Reality is he doesn't know. And if I continue to grill him, then he's going to learn that when he finally lies to me because he doesn't know that the grilling stops. So what you do is you say, okay, well, you can't do that. It's a violation of this rule. And I punish them. And they learn that being honest is pretty cool. And they get why they're being punished and they deal with it. With the girl, it's different. The girl, you say, why'd you do that? And they say, I don't know. They're lying. Hmm. (laughs) They know exactly why. They've weighed it and they've weighed the consequences. So you still deal with it the same way. You say, well, you know, you can't do it. This is the rule. See you later. But then my counselor goes in and talks to them. Mm-hmm. Who were you hanging with? What was going on? Because then we talk about friendship. We talk about relationships. We deal with it that way. So it's really important that when you're dealing with consequences with men and women or boys and girls, you deal with them completely different. Uh, and trust There's me. There's some controversy in that, I'm sure. I don't, I'm controversial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm curious, um, with the development of both of these courts, if you see, it sounds like there's been quite a bit of success with both of them, but what kind of barriers or flaws do you see in the broader system that, uh, well, you and the, the people, the participants struggle with? That's, that's such a broad question because there's so many things <laughs> yeah, you know start. the first part is family with stigma yeah. sure right you have to deal with that that the, the family members feel for some reason that it must have been their parenting style or that other people are going to judge them you know if i were if i were to go to my neighbor and say you know what i just found out my child has cancer right my neighbor would probably even do a gofundme account and mm-hmm. do whatever they can instantly said, console you if i said you know i just found out my my child suffering with addiction the family member would pro- or the neighbor would probably go, oh, sorry, said. And then they would be thinking in the back of their mind, I wonder what they stole from me. Yeah. Or if I need new locks. You mm-hmm. know, stuff like that. Um, so you have to deal with that part. Um, the other part is actual treatment and insurance and things like that, because treatment's not cheap. And you could take any other chronic terminal disease and the insurance company will not dictate the treatment. Mm-hmm. If a doctor says someone needs 20 sessions of chemotherapy, they are getting 20 sessions. But if an evaluator or doctor comes back and says, someone needs 30 days of inpatient, the insurance company will come back and say, okay, well, we're only going to pay for 10. Hmm. And so we run into a lot of issues that way. And, and quite frankly, um, treatment with regards to addiction is it's so different. Mm-hmm. Even though we have ASAM 5, right? And that's like, what, 2,000 pages. Mm-hmm. So you have that with regards to treatment, but it's so different because it's just always evolving. You know, it, when I started... 
we had this at some of the treatment places, they did this thing where if you messed up, you sat in a circle and everyone sat around you and shamed you about mm. what a bad thing they did. Mm-hmm. And that was common practice back in the 90s. Yeah. Right? And so things change as we go. And it's very difficult because we have doctors who were still dealing with treatment in the 90s who are still practicing. Right. Mm-hmm. Versus folks who are dealing today. And, and it's just so different. So... The only thing I could say is what we do as a team is we try and constantly educate ourselves with the newest stuff. Um, like today, I'm not a big fan of Matt. I may be. I may be Which in med- a couple of years. Medically assisted treatment. Oh, okay. okay. Suboxone, Vivitrol, yeah, yeah. Methadone. methadone. Um, okay. But I may be. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not today. Yeah. Uh, Did you have to take classes on, on how, like, how to read people and how to tell whether or not somebody's lying? or? You can just tell. Okay. <laughs> Lots of hours because, behind the bench. Yeah. It's like, I mean, this is what I do for a living, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm able to judge credibility of people when they testify. Sure. So you, you get that too. You know, it's not like I look left. It's not just enough questioning and, and you'll figure out whether or not they're lying. Um, but it's the evaluators. Now, here's what's so interesting is we do an evaluation when you start the program and we, we set treatment based on self-reportings. So we will have one level of treatment, but I I don't think any of them, I don't think any of them were ever honest in that initial evaluation. How they evaluated themselves. Exactly, because they don't want, I don't know why, you know, hey, I'll use heroin, but I don't use meth, right? Mm -hmm. But then later on, if you do the evaluation six months later, Mm -hmm. they're a little bit more honest. Mm -hmm. You know, I I have one girl went two years, never used heroin, never used heroin for two years she's in there. And during graduation, she says, well, I remember the first time I used black. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I got your original evaluation. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't honest then. <laughs> um, but it's, it's even though they're in trouble, they know that honesty helps them. Mm-hmm. They still don't want to be 100% honest because of the shame that goes yep, with it. That's what I was just thinking. It goes back to the question, the, the theme of stigma. It's like that, that's both for parents, families, but also for people right. who are struggling with the addiction themselves. There's all kinds of... You know, if I stole if I stole a stereo from my family, they could be upset with me. But if they find out that I stole every single thing from them, mm-hmm. it's a little worse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right. and, and it's so interesting because I, I tell them, I say, there's nothing you're going to say that's going to upset your parents more than they are now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing. So they're here in court so with you. They, they get it and they still they still don't do it. And it's crazy because the parents don't either. The parents aren't very honest about how much they've lied for their kid or covered for their kid or or how much their kids use. Or, and sometimes they're just in absolute denial and they don't know the truth. Mm. But sometimes they don't want me to judge them or their kids harsher. Well, mm. it goes back to what we were talking about before we started recording, that the person with the substance use disorder is addicted to the drug, but the family is often addicted to their family member with the addiction. And so there are all kinds of wild behaviors come with both. The of conversations things. were so much better before we got on the air. That <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but that, yeah, that's part of my, my, our theory is that mm-hmm. the uh, individual in my program, you know, addicted to drugs and uh, the family members are addicted to them. And, you know, what, what we discussed is that the participants are using, in most cases, in the external pharmacy, mm-hmm. making themselves feel good through ingesting and the parents are using the internal pharmacy, making themselves feel good, but not through another substance by making their kids happy, mm-hmm. which is so bizarre because we know that in the long term it doesn't work. 
but we feel good. And sometimes it's because we're afraid, uh, you know, yeah. or the kids can become violent and we want our own peace. And sometimes, you know, many cases that the parent members or the family members are uh, children of alcoholics. And, and so they're used to right. the, the chaos. Right. And this is a generational and, pattern of right. behavior and in a way is, of that's their homeostasis. That's, that's all they know. That's their yeah. calm. Yeah. Hmm. And, well, and we're talking about dopamine. dopamine. Um, see, because there's two things that make us feel good, right? Mm-hmm. Serotonin and dopamine. Those are the only mm-hmm. two things that make us feel good. And they're able to measure dopamine, mm-hmm. right? So we know through our blood, we know what releases so much dopamine. So they're able to tell that a candy bar is 50 dopamine. Okay, yeah, this is where I popped in. I was right. Late. And they're able to tell that if you uh, hold your child for the first time, it's like three or 400 dopamine. They also know that a sexual orgasm somewhere between three and 400 dopamine. Mm-hmm. They also know that methamphetamine and heroin, somewhere between 11 and 1200 dopamine, or three or four times the amount of dopamine or feel good that you would have from a sexual orgasm. Mm-hmm. And so what I tell the parents, I said, if you want to know just how powerful this stuff is, right, take your best sexual experience you can imagine. I've ever had times it by four. Because mm-hmm. that's what our kids who have nothing to lose. Yeah. That's their experience. That's and then they're, they're having sex on top of it. Yeah. That's <laughs> and so, you know, they're in there. And then, you know, and I tell the parents, how many of you are in here and you're in a a different relationship because one of you couldn't keep it in your pants? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And yet you're standing up there saying, why can't my kid quit? When you couldn't for one-fourth the dopamine they're getting. Yeah. And and you look at the people that have something to lose. I mean, they have something. Look at, like we talked about, look at Clinton, look at Ensign, look at Weinstein, look at Cosby. Cosby, yeah. They have something to lose. Mm -hmm. And they put it all at risk. For one for, for one fourth the dopamine you're going to get from meth or heroin, and when you put it in perspective like that, you're like, well, how do they quit? Yeah, yeah, it changes changes yeah. the narrative really quickly. It's completely insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you wrote a book, uh, an no. ebook. <clears throat> no, what that was actually was um, it was a lecture. Oh, okay, and so they're one of my lectures, and they reduced some of the stuff and. Um, so they, it's an ebook. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read it in years. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm just curious. And I did my research. Well, when they gave it to me, they, I reviewed it. I said, yeah, that sounds like everything I said in the lecture and we worked on it <laughs> right. and everything was good. Except this end part um, where it says I murdered six people. Yeah. Yeah. I left that part out. <laughs> um, but, but that's, it's, it's cause you know, I lecture, um, but it's about why court, right? Uh, I lecture about family addiction, things okay. like that. I, I, you know, I was just in Bellingham, Washington and then North Dakota uh, so I go, I actually travel throughout the nation to talk about family addiction okay. and, and not really so much family addiction, but family treatment. And I use Yogurt as the jumping off point. Well, this is how I've learned all this stuff is okay. because, you know, this is what I do. And what I've done for the last eight years uh, is the youth offenders. So when you started to develop this court, uh, there, I imagine there was not another model only like one this. like it in the nation. Okay, and as a matter of fact, I think there's only one more like wow. it in the nation, and that's what a in shame. Florida. Uh, and, and you know, when I and I go and talk about it, but it's so funny because all these other judges are afraid to um, mandate family members because they're adults. Oh, that's the part you're talking about. Right. Yeah. The Supreme Court said that may or may not be con- constitutional. May not, but who cares? If they said, uh, I'm in my last term. So yeah. you're, if you're saving people's lives. Well, and that's the big picture is mm-hmm. it, I believe it's constitutional because they agree to yeah. be part of it. I'm mm-hmm. not mandating. They agree to, and they can leave at any time, mm-hmm. but then they no longer qualify for my program. 
right? So, and it takes a lot of time. You know how many judges freak out when they find out that I'm in a dragon boat with these kids, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, you know, we do the, the dragon boat races. Uh-huh. They're the Susan B. Coleman dragon boat races. I kind of want to get in trouble just so I can get into well, some of these activities. Like, you, well, but there's other stuff, you know, there's, we do the good stuff, but there's a lot of bad stuff. You right. know, I have curfews and things yeah. like that. Um, but the kids have won, they've won the gold medal the last two years. And it's really funny because all these guys practice, right? But if you put a bunch of 18, 24 year old addicts who are now clean, yeah. they're healthy and, yeah. and they can go. And they're, they're industrious. And, and they love <laughs> the motivation. Uh, so we do, you know, we do rock climbing. Um, I don't know if you've had Brittany on your show or not. Yeah. Yes, we have. But we just did Hungry Hippo with her. Yeah, endure. She had them out and we did Human Hungry Hippo, which mm-hmm. the kids absolutely oh, love. Oh, fun. And then we also use Rob Henderson too, who's a, a recreational therapist. Um, but we, we try and do something where a lot of the times the kids think it's fun and it's nothing more than a game, but in reality it's therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we try not to. We, we like... Uh, I learned, okay, we know what a runner's high is, right? Yeah. Runners that after so much, so sure. many hours, you, you uh, feel release serotonin, gluten, and, you know, all types of right. stuff because you're euphoric. Well, I learned that if you row a boat uh, more than six miles, you get the runner's high. Because hmm. wow. we made it 10. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and, but, but you go do it and we mm-hmm. have them do it and it's a good time. But the feeling they have afterwards, it's amazing. Right. Um, and what we want to do is we want to program their brain to understand that some of the natural highs are much better than any artificial high you're going to get because mm-hmm. we're releasing more than dopamine. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're serotonin releasing serotonin, endorphins, glutamine, mm-hmm. natural all types stuff. of stuff. So that if, and we hope they don't, but if they do relapse, the brain's very good at saying, I kind of like this one better. Mm-hmm. Okay. I get what you're saying. Uh, and, and people have said that even when they've relapsed because of everything we've done, that it just wasn't as much fun. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't fun at all because they were so paranoid that I was going to be knocking on the door when when they come in <laughs> and they were going to have to deal with that. Uh, do you remember Assembly Bill 194? Where they were trying Was to- that the one with regards to the mentors? or, or the, Restricting peer services. Yeah. Um, that was an interesting bill because what they were trying to do is saying you had to be certified. Yeah. You had to be certified if you were going to basically do anything with life skills, whether it was you were either learned or lived experience, right? Mm-hmm. And that included GED, everything that had to do with life skills. Well, in essence, what that would do would mean that anybody in recovery would have to be certified to give any advice in life skills, right? which would take my attorney out of the book because huh. my attorney's has lived experience where he mm. has to sit back and go, dude, this is what I did. Right. Stop this. But he wouldn't be able to do that without getting a certification. It would take one of my case managers out there because for 10 years he's been helping these guys do this, but their certification requirement was so crazy. So we did fight, we fought that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's going to be another bill. And, and I'm really good with peer certification because there's sure. a lot of abuses that happen. Mm-hmm. But like what, what, well, sometimes you're in there and, you know, the 13th step. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of abuses that happen. Okay. But if I'm on the bench and they're through a court program, I want to make sure a lot of these abuses don't happen and they don't need to be certified yeah. to make sure this doesn't happen. How often do you have to wage these kinds of battles? 
with the other with bills. Well, and, they're they're only there every two years, okay. uh, so <laughs> it's only two years. But we not just those battles. We have battles every legislation <laughs> because somebody has a bad experience, and that one bad experience means we've got to change the law. Uh, you know, last time they want to make all traffic matters. They want to make them all civil infractions and not criminal because some soccer mom got arrested on a stop sign because she didn't come to court. She's not a criminal. But tell me what type of leverage we would have for reckless driving and, and these other charges if we made it civil. Yeah. Because there's people who just aren't going to pay civil penalties. And then, and so those are the type of battles we have to run, okay. handle. And there are battles with regards to recovery. Um, it is important that we have folks that actually understand it. Now, there's a big difference between understanding addiction and recovery than knowing somebody yeah. who's been in addiction. Yes. And everybody and, knows somebody. Yes. And so a lot of people say, well, you know, my dad was an addict. I get it. My brother's an addict. I get it. No, they get how to be a victim. You know, that's kind of like if your son had child cancer saying, I know how to treat it. My son had cancer. But that's what a lot of folks do. And, and that's what we run into at the assembly is you have these issues, they come up, their bills, and they seem like a good idea, but the impact of it's really bad. Mm -hmm. But the person's like, no, no, I know this person, and this is what it is. And you're like, yeah, like this new marijuana stuff, right? Mm -hmm. All these guys sitting up there saying, I smoked marijuana in college. Well, yeah, guess what? It was at 4%, right? And they're like, I turned out okay. That's 30 and well, look at higher this. now. No, you get, it, you get something called moon rock sun, right? You're getting a 70%. Mm -hmm. And it's not the same. You could have smoked in the 80s every day, all the time, anytime. And you would have never been physically dependent because it yeah. wasn't strong enough. Sure. Today, some of the stuff you take once, you're physically dependent because huh. of the way the dopamines get released. Ah, this is new information to me right now. Well, it depends on what you're using. I mean, there's, oh. some, there's some stuff I'm, that just, I remember. It's just, it's just curious to me. I, I think this should be talked about more because mm -hmm. all the information I hear is how marijuana is, is not, not addictive. Which I never. Well, really I got a lot of people in my court that would tell you otherwise. I agree. Uh, and, and, and I'm, a, I'm on the. I'm and, on that page. And, and look, they have this stuff, right? Indica, right? It works just like heroin. It has the same part. You don't need heroin if you're smoking enough indica because it gives you the same feeling. They have this stuff, sativa. You don't need meth. It gives you the same stuff. I have this girl in court just today. She's on something called Black Widow. She's mm. like, I don't need meth. Ah, and she's going crazy. But because it's legal. It puts us in a very difficult position. Oh, very interesting. And then, and here's what's really interesting is if you're under 21 and you're drinking alcohol, I can jail you. Mm -hmm. If you're under 21 and you're smoking weed, I cannot because the laws don't allow that. It's only a civil penalty. Oh. Mm. But what I can do is I can have you evaluated and then I can order treatment. And if you don't follow the treatment, then I can jail you for contempt. Oh, okay. But it makes no sense that we would treat alcohol different more harsh than we would marijuana um it should be on and marijuana well they shouldn't marijuana has a lot different side effects than okay. alcohol and and, and and let me say this cbd has some really great stuff even with the thc combination mm -hmm. there is some really good stuff for alzheimer's ms seizures there's some really good stuff but the problem is the abuse is where they mix it and they only are making it for recreational and you don't need it for that area. Why somebody needs 70% THC in anything, I have no idea. But it's there. Yeah. Um, and that's the situation that we have is 
even nationally, it's making so much. And then, and because it's federally illegal, right? What do you do with the monies? How are you taxing this? Because this can't go into an FDIC bank. Mm-hmm. So you have all these other issues. Um, everybody looked at the money. I think they jumped. I don't think I'm allowed to have a position on this actually, but that's where it is. <laughs> As judges were supposed to stay impartial. Do you um, want me to cut all this? No. <laughs> I don't mind. I don't is it uh, difficult being a judge that uh, advocates for recovery? Do you, do you find opposition? Um, no, it's, it's a weird thing is I've never found anybody who opposed somebody getting their life together. <laughs> right. And or whether, treatment. Whether you would say it or not, everybody knows somebody and everybody loves somebody who's suffering with the disease. Now, you may not publicly say it, but you know who they are. Mm-hmm. And when a judge is out there saying, look, we are working on solutions. I've never had anyone say, screw that. No solutions. Incarcerate them. Hmm. I mean, all the way up to the Supreme Court, every level I've ever had, they've said, look, save it. If we can save a family, if we can do this, we're good. Um, The only time we've ever had any pushback would be like folks who have DUIs. Okay. Because they're so dangerous and people die, uh-huh. you know, and that would be the point where you say, okay, but that's what we talk about is when the side effect is so dangerous that it endangers community, you do have to take them out of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it doesn't, we need to work with them until it becomes so dangerous where we can't work with them. But I've never had any, well, if they have, they've done it behind my back, but nobody's ever <laughs> confronted <laughs> me and said, you know. Don't do this. So I'm curious. I mean, I think, let me say, I think just saving one person's life is enough reason to have the court and have the program. But I'm curious from a financial standpoint, um, what benefit providing treatment well, That's an interesting question. So let's talk about this. I polled my kids and I said, how much money do you spend a day when you're using drugs? It's around 200 or something. Well, it's around $200. But mm-hmm. because we assume that they, they love to... Um, exaggerate. We sure. cut it down to a hundred. Okay. So you cut it down to a hundred. That's thirty six thousand dollars that they use a year in drugs. Mm-hmm. So where do you get that? So oh, you know, I had a job, and then I begged a little bit, hooked a little bit, stole everything from my parents, and then my neighbors, and then their neighbors. By then, my parents replaced it. So and that's just what goes on. So when you have them in the program, right? That's thirty six thousand dollars worth of crime that's not happening, mm-hmm. and that's only to what we'll get if we cut it in half. Mm-hmm. Plus, they have to have a job. So now they're actually working and they're producing and they're paying taxes. They're contributing to the community. Right, and now their parents are also not trying to cover up their stuff. When, when we're also talking about them not going to the hospitals for ODs. Mm-hmm. Which is a huge expense. Right. And we're talking about not processing them in the system, which is about $2,000. So when you look at it and say, I do have grants, I have grants, but outside of the grants, each defendant cost me about $8,000 a year. Okay. Not jailing them is about $150 a day. So we're talking 50000 Wow. So you sit there and say, financially, it's stupid not to have treatment programs. Yeah. Because <laughs> we save. Now, when you look at this and you say, okay, I have 52 graduates, and if we're saving $30,000 a year, you pass that out. We're talking millions and millions of dollars worth of savings. Mm -hmm. And so anyone that says this financially doesn't make sense, doesn't understand 
finances. Yeah, right. Um, and and let's take the finances out of it. Let's sure. take the finances out of it. October first, we all know what happened on October first, right? Yes. Right. Fifty eight people died. Um, my daughter is in the band, and she she's country, and she does this, and she wakes me up, and she says, "Dad, there's a shooting going on," and they would have been at that concert, mm-hmm. so she's telling me this, and I'm like, I'm so numb to it. Because all you hear are shootings every day. And I'm like, I work, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Well, later I find out that she was texting two of her friends while this is going on and one of, the, one of them died, right? So the next day I'm so caught up with my loved ones who've lost friends. And, mm-hmm. and then after that, I find out my friends who have lost loved ones. So for two days, I'm like in a fog. But this community does some stuff and I'm getting to a point, but the mm-hmm. community does some stuff that's really interesting is because the blood banks are slammed. Yeah. Right, they raise millions in GoFundMe mm-hmm. to take care of this. That was fifty-eight people. Mm-hmm. When you think that seventy-two thousand people died of a drug overdose last year, to put that in perspective, that's three times as many died on October first. Mm-hmm. Take the Raider Stadium, fill that up, and add six thousand. That's how many people die because of that. In our community, I do not see any GoFundMe accounts. Yeah. I do not see people rallying. I do not people see people out there advocating for the loss of someone. And I can promise you this. The loss of one of those individuals on October 1st equals the same pain and suffering that the loss does to another parent who dies from a drug overdose. Mm-hmm. What is the price you put on that? So you can take the finances out of it and then you can take any parent and say, how much money would you be get willing to give me to bring your child back Yeah, over the loss mm-hmm. of your child? That's a rough stance. And when you yeah. put it in that perspective, what price do we put on it? You know, what price can you say? And financially, how can you say? Now, some of these guys, you know, I have lost two people. I have had two people die okay. since we've done this. Um, but I've been doing this for you know, eight years yeah. with a lot of people. Um, I don't know if there's a price where I could say it's not worth it. Right. Yeah, it's really hard to put a price on somebody's life. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. it's, it's tough. And insurance companies do. They do yeah. put prices because when mm-hmm. people die, they're able to do that. Yeah. But when you look at that, when you say there was $31 million, I think is what they raised for October 1st for 58 people. And yeah, sometimes so. we have to go beg the legislation for yeah. 100000 it, it's really it makes you think about media baffling. attention and stuff like that. And, and it's the stigma yeah. evolved and, and you can fix the stigma. And if you can work with the stigma and you can get people to truly understand that it, it's a disease and that people can truly be saved. Yeah, because we're not, we're not knocking the people that gave the money to the, the victims of the shooting. We're, we're just awareness. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think it's great yeah. and I appreciate it. But the, the whole idea is to understand that if people would advocate the same for someone who lost, and, and you know what, it's crazy. The reason why is we all know why they died on October 1st, right? They were shot, this is what happened. Yeah. We have kids who die of drug overdoses and the parents say that they died from an epileptic sure. something, right. they, they, but they won't, they don't even wanna face it even though, though they, they know what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's one of those things that until we can internally in the family until we can internally discuss it and let people know that we're not shameful of it, how are we going to change the community? 
And that's where we deal with it. And, you know, I've, I've been blessed. No one in my family suffers with addiction. And so I've been blessed because I don't have that issue. As a matter of fact, rough. only time I've ever seen my dad drink a beer was one time when we were fishing. Huh. Uh, and that was it. Uh, but I haven't had that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. You're, um, you're a knowledgeable person. You know, so I get it. I understand the importance of it. And I really love this age group. This is such a fun age group because I don't know if I've ever grown up. And so <laughs> you can mess with these guys. Like I'll go play basketball with them and they'll kill me. Yeah. But it's so much fun to just be at this age group. And it's like if we can have other people that understand that once they're not using it. And, and you got to remember that most of these folks, when they first got hired or, or got drunk for the first time, they're 10, 11, 12. Right. We do not say that's a decision because we don't treat you as an adult because you can't make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. So how is it a choice when you become an addict at age 11? How is it a choice? Now, once once you've been clean for a while, you've gone through pause, you've taken care of it, you understand it, and you're in recovery, I think it can be argued it's a choice then. Mm-hmm. But until you take them out of the active addiction... Yeah, the, it's not a choice. Yeah, the inception of it. it it's kind of like a diabetic. You know, you have a donut. It's going to put you in a diabetic seizure, right? Once you have the donut and you're seizing, it's not a choice to stop seizing. No, but once it's out. But once you're out, you have the choice. To eat another donut. Whether or not you're eating another donut. Right. Well, that's the thing is there's a lot of confusion is what's the out. Mm-hmm. Many people think seven days is the out. Many people think 30 days is the out. Many people think one year months. is the out. 18 months is what most of the studies show is the out. And and even then, it can go longer. You know, there, there's people who I know who said, look, I'm doing great. I know an attorney who told me he'd been clean for five years, and the weirdest thing happened, he's driving down the road, and he hears this song, and he had the urges like he's never had before. Hmm. Wow. And he said, but it's fleeting. Just like, just like the urge to use, the urge to get help is fleeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when somebody needs help, we need to be there. Right. And we need to do things so we can get in the help because they change their mind like that. Yeah. Right. Because I have some non-recovery related questions. Okay. But I Go wanted ahead. to see no, if you... It's great. They're, they're, they're fun questions. Okay. Well, because these have not been so far, but <laughs> go ahead. Um, how, how accurate are judges portrayed in movies in your opinion? I don't know. Um, I think everybody has a perception of what a judge is. Yeah. Right. And most of that is from TV or But I got to tell you this, that when you're not wearing the robe, we're just like anybody else. I mean, I coach soccer. My kids are out there. I do that. Um, I do hold my kids to a higher standard. Say, you do anything that, you know, gets me on the cover of the newspaper, we're going to have real problems. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. Um, But, you know, most of the judges I know were nothing more than attorneys before they got elected. Uh, None of us were born in a robe. (laughs) Right? It's something that's got their... um, as individuals are portrayed in movies, just like judges are portrayed in movies, it's as real or not real as how the portrayals do. Do you have a favorite TV or movie judge? I do, um, but it has nothing. Oh, you mean do I have a judge who's a favorite TV? I don't watch those things. No, I mean I like just the medical the, stuff. Like oh, like uh, throughout history in any movie, is there uh, a certain? My cousin Vinny. Okay. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite movies Good. just because uh-huh. there's a lot of content stuff that's in there that's pretty funny. But right now we watch stuff like The Good Doctor okay. yeah. and things like that at the house. It's hard for me to watch law movies mm-hmm. because I'm going, oh, come on. 
it yeah. doesn't happen like that. That's, yeah. what, I, that's yeah. what I'm asking. Yeah. So I, it's hard for me to watch some of those and my wife. So they're not that accurate. <laughs> well, sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. But my right, wife refuses to watch those with me. She wants <laughs> to watch the movie and yeah. get into it. And I'm like, well, this doesn't happen. That's nonsense. Yeah. So, uh, How often do you have to... Uh, I've, I've done it once. Wow. I've hit the gavel one time. The record will reflect that he was moving his hand up and down in the yeah. motion to <laughs> hit a gavel. Um, I've only had to do it once because I shout. Okay. And the only time I did it one time was to scare somebody who was like falling asleep on the front. <laughs> so, so are you saying shouting is typically enough to get, get the is, courtroom to calm it down? It is okay. when I do. Uh, <laughs> how often do you have to hold people in contempt well, I try not to do it. Uh, it's the thing that I, I rarely do. Most it's, a, it's a lot seriously, it's more serious than I thought it was on TV. Well, contempt can, can you can do up to 25 days in jail for uh, contempt. Um, and that's just kind of talking back to you, right? Or well, not doing it, what you tell them to do? Okay, listen, the number one reason judges get in trouble while on the bench is abuse of power. Mm -hmm. The number one abuse of power is misuse of contempt. Okay. okay. So... Talking back to me is cool, but when you throw the F word out, mm -hmm. I'm pretty much going to keep you. Um, throw things at me, I'm going to keep you. Um, we try not to use contempt. Now, I've threatened it a lot. I've ordered a lot, but I've purged it. Okay. And a lot of time I've held people in contempt, not for the person I'm locking up, but for everybody else in the audience. Hmm. Then you have them come back and apologize. Mm -hmm. And then you say, you can't act like this. Don't let it happen again. See you later. Mm-hmm. Or we had to wait till they're medicated and we do that. I'm actually teaching contempt at the conference for the judges next week. Okay. And so I was going over a bunch of old videos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's some good stuff. Uh, <laughs> I kind of want to see imagine. it. Lasting thoughts on Yo Court and, and what you'd like people to take from this. Um, I think I'd like family members to know if there's something that you would know is that there's hope. Okay. Yeah. That the judicial system is not always the enemy. I have to advise attorneys all the time that you did not take an oath to keep your client out of jail. You took an oath to do what's best interest of your client. Sometimes incarceration is the only thing that's going to save their life. Mm -hmm. So you sit back, you deal with the parents, and you talk about what's best for your client's interest, not whether or not he's getting out of jail today. Mm-hmm. Um, there were days when we had all types of facilities and we had all type of help and it was everywhere, but that was taken, you know, that was gone in the eighties. It seems that the judicial system has become the answer with all the different specialty courts we have because we have leverage that a lot of people don't. And it's unfortunate because that's not our job, mm -hmm. but that's what it's become. If your kid's committing crimes, don't try and hide it. It's okay to have them, and, and, and I'll tell you this, because a lot of people are like, oh my God, what if they go to prison? What if they go to jail? I have many family members who have told me that they would rather visit their child in prison than the cemetery. Right. And I have two friends. Um, one of them, their kid died. The other one, their kid's going to prison. And when the kid went to prison, I told the dad, I said, well, you know, there's worse. You should feel lucky, feel blessed. And he thought what a dick I was. Um, <laughs> But then when his friend's son died, he called me and said, I can't tell you how right you are mm -hmm. that uh, I can visit my son still. Yeah. yeah. And that makes a difference because sometimes we do what we call loving them to death. And that's hiding them and that's protecting them. And if there's anything 
that you asked that I would ask that they uh, pull out of this is, is that the judicial system's not the enemy. Uh, know that we are there to help. Not, you know, not all the time can we get them the help they need, mm. um, but you can lean on us because we have lever- leverage. Mm. Yeah. Well, this was an amazing interview. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. I really well, appreciate it. All right. Well, I don't know much about addiction, so I'm still learning. So no, learning. this is extremely <laughs> we informative. We all are. <laughs> this is why I started the podcast, is to learn, learn myself. Subscribe and listen to us on all the major streaming platforms, Google Play, Apple, Stitcher. Follow us on all the social media sites at Recover Everything. And visit our website at recovereverything.com.